Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We've had a great week. We've had a great few uh, run of episodes. And shout out to everyone this week who's just learning about Black Wall Street. I say that and I shake my head, but I'm glad and, and happy for those who've taken some time out of their lives to learn more about the many race massacres we've had in this country. You know, today I'll be interviewing along similar lines, not exactly on point, but similar lines, author and poet Clint Smith about his new book, How the Word is Passed. But before I get to Clint, I wanted to talk to you all about uh, the senator in Arizona, not Senator Kelly, but the other one, Kristen Sinema. In case you missed it, Sinema recently did an interview where she said, among other things, the filibuster in the Senate was necessary to, quote, protect democracy. Give this part of the interview a listen. Well, as folks in Arizona know, I've long been a supporter of the filibuster because it is a tool that protects the democracy of our nation. Rather than allowing our country to ricochet wildly every two to four years back and forth between policies, the idea of the filibuster was created by those who came before us in the United States Senate to create comedy and to encourage senators to find bipartisanship and work together. Now, let me be clear and use my uh, legal degree here to tell you that this is bullshit. And y'all know it's bullshit. And as we've noted on episodes before, when we hosted experts on the filibuster, its roots and its use have often been used to block progress, particularly bills that would enhance the civil rights of black Americans. That's a fact. Senator Sinema's Schoolhouse Rock's explanation of the filibuster may work in Arizona for now, but as things stand, the filibuster is standing in the way of police reform, voting rights legislation, gun control proposals. So while conceptual conversations about preserving democracy may sound good, real substantive change that can improve the lives of Americans and save the lives of black Americans have been sacrificed in the name of bipartisanship. I've said this often on the show, but Democratic leadership in this administration is being held hostage by Sinema and Manchin. And the razor thin majorities in the House and the Senate are all but lost if this administration isn't able to deliver both on our economic recovery and on these justice issues that drove so many young and black and brown voters to turn out in 2020 who may sit out in 2022 if they can't point to anything that's changed as a result of their vote in 2020. And in the case of voting rights legislation, these people who Democrats need to vote will see a much more difficult landscape for voting in places like Georgia and Arizona, who have both congressional elections and gubernatorial elections on the ballot in 2022. So beyond the clear moral imperative to these things, there's an obvious political one for Democrats as well. And Republicans have allies and Democrats like Manchin and Cinema, who live largely isolated and privileged lives, completely isolated from the consequences from those votes they choose not to take because they choose to keep the filibuster in place. This is a no win for Democrats and someone, whether it's the president or leader Schumer, needs to find a way to get those two in line or we'll lose everything in 2022 and 2024. And that's that on that. Now on to a show with my good friend, Clint Smith. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade, boulder dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 
miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Thank you, Clint Smith, for joining us on the Bakari Sellers Podcast. How you doing today, my brother? It's good to be here. I'm doing well. How are you? Man, I am blessed. I try to do these interviews while my twins are asleep, so we got good time right now. This there is, you go. This is my honor at the park right now. I got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, so oh my you, you kind of fit it in where you can. I know. Did you just let them go to the park by themselves? I mean, they're just outside. No, no. They're part of a little, <laughs> little, neighborhood, little neighborhood group that we, we sort of banded together during the pandemic where we you know, had no childcare for a long time. Yeah, man, that's perfect. That's what we need in my neighborhood. I'm going to talk to my wife about that instead of just letting the kids go outside by themselves. <laughs> uh, but look, we start each one of my episodes by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And you're an educator and a writer. Talk to us, though, about the inflection point for you when you were teaching in PG County, Maryland, but decided to write full time. What was your big break? Yeah, so I was uh, a high school teacher, in uh, high school English teacher in Prince George's County. And I think I was spending a lot of time, uh, my, my pedagogy was very much shaped by critical pedagogy and a sort of Paulo Freirean tradition and, and really trying to get my young people to understand how the world is a social construction and thus can be reconstructed and deconstructed and made into something new and that you don't have to accept the realities of your community as static or as inevitable, right? That is, I think all the time about that James Baldwin quote, or this Jaden Baldwin essay in 1963, A Talk to Teachers. It's one of his less famous ones, but one that moves me a lot. And he's, it's based on a speech he gave to a group of New York City educators, uh, but also applies to uh, the sort of larger society. And part of what he says is that teachers have to, of Black children, and he's talking again to teachers directly, but also using teachers as sort of a metonym for the larger society and larger America, is that teachers of Black children have to tell that Black child that although the world tells them over and over again that they are criminal, that it is in fact the society that created the conditions Correct. that that child is growing up in that is the criminal, right? And like it's intuitive to so many of us, but it's not clear to so many, and it's especially not clear to a lot of young people who grew up, who grow up and don't have the language or the toolkit with which to make sense of why the communities they grow up in look the way that they do. And if nobody's giving them those tools, then they begin to internalize certain things about themselves, uh, given because of the messages that they're inundated with. And so part of what I wanted to do with my own teaching was push back against that. And the more time I spent thinking about this, the more time I began to realize more acutely how my student school and, and my students' lives were part of this much larger ecosystem that has been shaped by a range of sociopolitical and historical factors. And I just wanted more time to delve into that. And I just wanted to spend some more time with that. So I went to graduate school and got my PhD and started freelancing for different outlets, for The New Yorker for a while, for The Guardian, some different places, and then graduated last year, last May, and didn't really want to go into academia um, and wanted to have work that was sort of in conversation with a, a larger audience and, and got a job offer from The Atlantic and 
most people are. most people like quit their job to go to LA and become an actor. You quit your job to actually <laughs> to actually write, which is pretty dope. Let me like can we I want to pick on something you said. I, I've been searching for it and I can't find the exact tweet, but I found a portion of it here. And it's this bastard, you know, we've had these two terms in particular that have been bastardized by folk. One is critical race theory and the other is woke, right? Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see whole segments on uh, Tucker Carlson, a.k.a. Tuckums, as my good friend <laughs> Joanne Reed calls him. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just saw recently, just kind of piggybacking on some of the things that you were talking about, um, Nikki Haley, my, my, my friend and former governor, mm-hmm. um, uh, who said that critical race theory is harmful to a child's education. Uh, schools need to stop teaching kids that they're racist. Talk to me about just how how that perverts the norms or perverts what we're actually trying to do and steers the conversation away from the difficult conversation of race that shouldn't be a political football, but should be one that's enveloped in honesty. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether or not to, for a while I was like, these people don't know what critical race theory is. They don't. They don't, they don't though. I, I guess I don't, I'm, I, I don't know if they don't know or if they don't, or if they know and don't care. And, and I almost don't know which one is more insidious, you know? Um, <laughs> good point. That's it, it's kind of like critical race theory is, is not teaching children that they are racist. Critical race theory is a prism through which to understand the sort of larger fabric and history of society and how it has shaped the economic, social, and political infrastructure of this country. It is a way of looking at our society and understanding how race has impacted every segment of American life. They, they are trying to pervert it because that is, that's what the Republican Party does now, right? It's, a, it's just a, a myriad of, of culture wars. That's that all it try is. To um, and to varying de- degrees of success. I mean, you know, what, for, it was important for me uh, as a teacher, as a writer, I think a lot about, and, and many of the reasons I, I wrote my book is because I think a lot about when I was younger and I think about not having, again, that, that language to understand why my hometown in New Orleans looked the way that it did, right? I was mm. inundated with messages growing up from all segments of society about why New Orleans was, you know, the quote unquote murder capital of the nation, why we incarcerated more people per capita than Iran and Russia and China, mm. why the projects looked the way that they did, why the people who lo- lived in them lived the way that they did. And you're inundated with these messages. And if nobody is giving you the history to understand that the reason these communities look the way that they do is not because of the people in those communities, but it's instead because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And that, you know, and you can go all the way back to the history of slavery, right, which, you know, existed in this country for 100 years longer than it didn't. Right. And, and so the idea that we would tell ourselves that this history has nothing to do with the contemporary landscape of inequality is both morally and intellectually disingenuous. You know, my grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. The woman who opened the museum of national, the national museum of African-American history and culture alongside the Obama family who rang the bell that was sort of signaling the opening of this museum in 2015 was the daughter of an enslaved person. Right. And You're, so the can idea we, that, let's back up to that. Cause I want people to understand it. You said we've, we were enslaved a hundred years longer than we were not. So if we are to imagine, think symbolically of the first enslaved people coming to this country in 1619, right? There's a lot of 
historiography and, and like you know, conversation, conversation, about, conversation, conversation about the day. But if we yeah. use 1619 as the date, right? First, Africans came to the American British colonies in 1619. Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, Civil War ended in 1865, Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act were signed in 1964 and 1965, and the Federal Housing Act was signed in 1968. So Black people have only had a semblance of legal and legislative freedom in this country for 50 some odd years. For 350 years before that, it was fundamentally legal to discriminate against, dehumanize, delegitimize, and disenfranchise Black people. Not in an interpersonal, somebody being mean and using a racial slur, but like you are a state-sanctioned, second-class citizen if you're to be considered a citizen at all. So if you're going to kick somebody for 350 years and then ostensibly stop kicking them for a seventh of the amount of time that you spend kicking them, it would be both morally and intellectually disingenuous, again, to then look at that group of people and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have the same economic outcomes? Why don't you same, have the same academic outcomes? Why is there so much Oh, violence? Chicago, Chicago. Chicago, <laughs> right? Look at Chicago. And it's, and it's disingenuous because, it, and, and sometimes I say that and people are like, oh, well, you know, are you saying that black people are trapped by history? And it's no, it's not no one is trapped by history, but it, you have to understand context. People still have agency. People still have free will, but we have to understand that agency and free will within the sort of larger historical and social context that it's operating. And so in the context of slavery, Right. If you if you understand slavery as being from 1619 to 1865 and lasting about 250 years and it only being about 150 years since 1865 and the end of slavery. Again, it's like we in the American British colonies to what became America, we had slavery for a century longer than we haven't. And it was the, the reason the United States exists as a global economic superpower is because Black people were the, the great catalysts of, of economic wealth. In 1860, as the historian David Blight says, the four million enslaved Black people were worth more than every bank, factory, and railroad combined, more, worth more than all manufacturing that mm. the country had in 1860. And so again, to the idea, going back to what we were talking about before around critical race theory, and you, you want to teach my child that they're racist. And it's like, if you're not going to, the fact that I grew up and in my Louisiana history class, in my American history class, in my AP history class, the fact that no one talked about that, the fact that that conversation and that framing wasn't brought up, the fact that I grew up in Louisiana surrounded by Confederate iconography, that on my way to school, I drove down Robert E. Lee Boulevard to get to school, that I drove down Jefferson Davis Highway to get to the grocery store, that my middle school was named after a Confederate leader, that my family lives on a street named after someone who enslaved over a 150 uh, enslaved people. The fact that the way that I was taught about the Confederacy was that these were just people who were fighting for states' rights. These were people who were fighting for honor and their family and not being taught that this was a treasonous army that was predicated on maintaining and expanding the institution of slavery and seceded from the Union specifically because they wanted to maintain uh, maintain the, the social and economic infrastructure that was predicated on slavery. The fact that those things weren't taught to me is, is not a, a it's, it is a profound sort of scholarly failure, right? It's a mm -hmm. pedagogical failure. It's a failure to teach about American history honestly, and to give me like an honest sense of why this country looks the way that it does today. And in, instead, I think there's this effort to have folks continue as we've done for, for, for generations, ignore that history. And the result is that you get millions of people who, who then fail to understand why our country looks the way that it does. And then 
make diagnoses um, mm-hmm. and then create solutions that are ahistorical and that are not actually amending or healing or repairing harm that has been done to different groups of people. I know we got to get to, um, I, we will get to how the word is passed, but before we get along, cause I, I can't talk about Nikki Haley without also asking this question. I saw, I'm sure you saw the recent comments from a number of black elected officials who all said when asked that America wasn't a racist country, namely people I love like uh, Jim Clyburn and Kamala Harris, who I on this show said they were wrong. And the answer to the question is yes, because I don't think that you can square that we're going to fix systemic racism and then say this country isn't racist. That dog done hunt. That's that's round pig square hole. Uh, As someone who writes about race and lives and race and lives at that intersection of race and public policy, in so much of the work that you do, what was your initial reaction to that? And why do you think it's so hard for even black politicians to publicly say what we know to be true? You know, they don't say the same thing off camera. In private. Correct. You know, you know, they don't say the same thing off. My, I mean, I, it's a sort of weird politics is a weird thing, you know, where you like. Everyone knows that when Kamala Harris goes home or, or when Jim Clyburn goes home, you know, they're talking about, I'm a, I assume, you know, the same way that we're talking about it, right? On, because it's, it, the insidiousness of white supremacy is that it turns that, that comment into an ideological one rather than an empirical one, right? Like it, it makes it, if somebody says, is America a racist country, which embedded within that is like, has America's history intentionally, systemically, and in a state-sanctioned way provided opportunity for millions of people across generations to accumulate and build wealth and opportunity that their ancestors could have never imagined and done so at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people whose ancestors were intergenerationally prevented from having access to those opportunities, then the answer is, is obviously yes. And, and, so, and that history creates a sort of contemporary landscape inequality that continues to perpetuate that racism. And they know that. And they don't say it because... You know, we are, our political discourse is further infantile. along than it was before, but it's, it's, it, infant, it, you know, it's, infantile. it's infantile now, which means, you know, <laughs> I don't even want to think about how the, how we would describe <laughs> it 10 years ago. You know, I mean, I think about all the time about like the conversation around race has certainly moved and progressed further over the last several years than I probably would have imagined um, at the beginning in like 2012. I always tell people that like, in 2012, if you would ask somebody what redlining was, they would have been like, is that a makeup? Is that a makeup line? Is that some lipstick? And it is, it is meaningful that we are now, that in, politi- in presidential debates, people are asked about reparations. It is meaningful that uh, people have to create platforms upon which they uh, talk about systemic racism and how they would uh, reduce the racial wealth gap. But as you say, it is our sort of, in many circles, and it's sort of in, it's certainly in our sort of larger political ecosystem, it, it remains infantile. I mean, you know, people are unable to to tell the truth because they fear what the truth, the sort of political implications that the truth will have for uh, you know their political careers, which is which I think is unfortunate, but also reflects you know where we how far we we still have to go. I mean that. That is a, a true reflection, a disappointing one, one that many times you can just sigh about. I, I think you'll appreciate this as a writer, but 
there's a powerful role that myth-making plays in American politics. Mm. For, for example, the Cracker Barrel coup uh, that happened at the Capitol in January, we saw a lot of white commentators say, quote, this is in America, this isn't who we are. And I'm like, this is exactly who we've always been. And mm. I feel like in order to get the politics we need in this country, we have to fight a lot of myth-making, as you were talking about. How important is the myth-making to how Americans get race wrong, and how do we break through that? So, I mean, part of part of what I think is important and part of what I write about in the book is that there is a, the way that our country understands its history is we don't have the same collective understanding of the history of this country, right? It's a sort of patchwork experience. And, and you know, in How the Word is Passed, I go to these different historical sites to understand how they're reckoning with the history of slavery, failing to reckon with it or doing something in between. And there's just a profound lack of consistency. And I think when we think about something like monuments, for example, which is something that I think about and grapple with in the book, the way, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were enslaved people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it's like, well, how does that happen? And what are the implications of that? And what would it look like if we had, um, not to say monuments and symbolisms, symbolism solve everything, but what symbol, symbols are is a reflection of stories we tell. And the stories we tell shape the narratives that are embedded in our psyche. And then the narratives we tell shape the policies we create and the policies we create shape the material conditions of people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Germany, they have this thing called, uh, called the stumbling stones. And there are like tens of thousands of stumbling stones across Germany. And when you go there, um, or when you come across one, they're these sort of golden brass uh, bricks in, in the ground that are sort of slightly elevated from the ground. Uh, and what they are are these things that have inscribed on them the names of people who were killed in the Holocaust um, and sent to death camps. And so you go to a yoga studio or you go to a Nike store or you go to McDonald's and in front of that place, there will be a stone or a series of stones that have the names of people who were killed in the Holocaust who were taken from that place that is now, you know, whatever restaurant or store or building that it is and who were sent to death camps. And so you can't go anywhere in that country without directly encountering and having to come to terms with what that country, what was done in that country's name to millions and millions of people. And it's not to say that anti-Semitism doesn't exist in Germany. We know that they're grappling with it in Correct. their own way. But there is some, there's a fundamentally different project of collective national reckoning and atonement that is happening there that is absent, abs completely absent here, right? Um, and so, you know, what would it look like if we had that in the context of slavery? What would it look like if you had, you know, these thing markers that every time you went into to different places across this country, it showed you where enslaved people were sold. It showed you where uh, an enslaved family lived. It showed you where indigenous families were removed. It showed you where Japanese inter American internment took place. Like it, how differently would that shape our sort of collective understanding of what has been done to people in this country's name? Um, and I think that that can play a small role in shifting how people understand, if you, if you have a better understanding of what has been done, then you have an un, a better understanding, I think, of what needs to be done moving forward. Um, and so that's a, that's a small piece of it, right? Just like thinking differently about how 
you know, the, the myth-making, we allow space for the myth-making because our, our collective landscape is devoid of reminders of what we've done. And we're failing in the context of our schools, but we're also failing in the sort of physical infrastructure of our landscape and how that can shape what our, our societal memories of, of oppression look like. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So let's get into how the word gets passed or excuse me, how the word is passed. What is it about? Why'd you write it? And what do you hope readers get out of it? Because it's fascinating to say the least. So the, the book began in 2017. And I was watching the statues um, of several Confederate monuments come down in New Orleans, in my hometown. And I watched the shout, statue. Shout out, shout out, Mitch Landrieu. Shout out, you know, shout out to Mitch Landrieu. We've had we've had a lot of conversations about this. And and Mitch, I think you know, he wrote a book about this. And and that was that process was the result of a range of conversations that he had with black folks around him, who who pushed him to think differently about something that he thought he understood, but very clearly realized that he didn't understand like what the history of these things were and, and what they meant. And so, you know, Mitch Landrew pushed by black activists in that city, pushed by black politicians in that city, uh, along with the city council agreed to take the statues down. This is after Dylan Roof uh, took the lives of the nine people in the, uh, in the church in Charleston two years prior. Uh, and so it was an extended process, but they finally came down over several weeks in May uh, statue of Robert E. Lee, PGD Beauregard, Jefferson Davis. And, and again, I was looking at what was happening in my hometown and I was thinking like, well, again, what does it mean that I grew up in this majority black city in which there were hundreds of pieces of Confederate iconography and memorials to enslavers and streets named after enslavers and buildings named after enslavers and school named after enslavers and, and relatively few that commemorated or celebrated enslaved people. Um, and so I tried to get a better sense of what that looked like in my own city. Who were the people who were trying to tell a more honest story about New Orleans and who are the people uh, failing to? And then I kind of spread that out to think more broadly across this country about the different places that were 
talking about this history or failing to in, in, willingness, in their willingness to confront or not confront this history. And so one of the places I go is Angola prison. Yeah. Uh, Angola, for those who might not be familiar, is the largest maximum security prison in the country. It is built on top of a former plantation. Uh, the 75% of the people held there are black men. Over 70% of them are serving life sentences. And what I tell folks is that if you were to go to Germany, to use it as an example again, and you had the largest maximum security prison in Germany built on top of a former concentration camp in which the people held there were disproportionately Jewish, that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. And rightfully so. It will be abhorrent. It will be disgusting. It would run counter to all of our moral and ethical sensibilities. And yet here in the United States, the largest maximum security prison in the country where the vast majority of people are black men serving life sentences who work in fields that were once a plantation for virtually no pay while someone watches them on horseback with a rifle over their shoulder, continue to work again on this land in which their very ancestors, as one of the men that I speak to at the prison, he was like, I worked in this, uh, in this prison. He was incarcerated in the prison for 30 years, a man named, named Norris Henderson. And we were having a conversation and he looked at his hands as we were sort of riding through Angola on our way out. And he looked into the fields and he was like, I worked in these fields and it was, I was paid seven cents an hour. And these could have been the very fields that my ancestors were working in just a few generations ago. And so what is, what is it about white supremacy that not only enacts violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us? to certain types of violences that in any other global context would be wildly unacceptable and so clearly so. And what is a place like Angola doing, or in the case of Angola, failing to do to account for what history has transpired on that land and the way that a prison that has uh, a museum in front of it that doesn't address slavery at all, that has a gift shop in which they seemingly make a mockery with the items inside of the gift shop, um, about the condition of the people who are living there. There's a mug uh, as well as hats that have the silhouette of the front gate of Angola and that say, Angola, a gated community, right? Like, and you're kind of like, well, how, what a profound failure mm -hmm. on so many levels and what a profound indictment of this country and of my home state um, that that place can exist at all much less exists in, in the way that it does. Another place I go is... Uh, you go to Monticello, uh, the Whitney Plantation, Angola, a Confederate Angola, cemetery, Galveston, Gory I, Island. I mean, like, what, you chose these sites, and I'm not going to give away the book at all, but you chose these sites. And let me tie these questions in together because you're a poet. But how does your orientation as a poet help shape how you tell the stories of these sites that you chose? I mean... You have a rhythm in the writing that you most, and I can tell you, I don't have it, uh, but most, most writers don't have, and it comes out. You can, you, can, you can smell, taste, feel a lot of the places that you go. Talk about that. I appreciate that. You know, I've spent the last several years spending time with uh, books of history on slavery that have profoundly moved and transformed me in profound ways. Um, and the more time I spent with these books, the more I wondered what it would be like to, to take the best of the history and the best of this historiography and sort of add a poetic sensibility, right? Like my, mm -hmm. my background in writing is, is as a poet, like that's how I came up as a writer is going to open mics and poetry slams in college and, and then through my young adulthood uh, before I sort of moved across genre and started 
you know, now I'm, I'm both a poet and a journalist at the Atlantic and, uh, you know, do a range of other, other types of writing, but my, my origins are always as a poet and that's the lens that I bring to, to every type of writing that I do. And I think what poetry does is it pushes you to home in on the granular, right? Like what does mm-hmm. the place look like? What does it smell like? What do the voices sound like? What is it like? Not only let's, what does it mean to not only understand like a slave cabin in the abstract, but like, what does it feel like and smell like and look like to stand inside of it? Right. Like, what is it? What is the, how does the land move? How do the people who are responsible for cultivating and curating and telling the story of that land, how do they move? What are their sensibilities? What are their uh, perspectives and, and how, what are our, our conversations and engagements look like? And so, you know, I wanted to take the bet. I think of a book like uh, Annette Gordon Reed's The Hemings is a Monticello, which was, you know, when I read it, a book that <laughs> it just changed everything I thought I knew about Jefferson. And was and and did so for almost you know for so many people across this country. I mean that's why that book won basically every award a book every award win. Yeah. And I was like, well, what if you take the best of that history and then I, I bring that history to the land itself, right? And and think about what it means to be on the land that was uh, not only Jefferson's but also belonged to the Mahem- the Hemingses and the Grangers and the Fawcetts and so many of the enslaved families who lived there across generations. Um, and I just wanted the, the reader to feel like they were on this journey alongside me um, to the best of my ability. And, and you know, I think poems and, and novels and literary fiction um, served as really uh, helpful guides. You know, the way Tony, I mean, when you read Toni Morrison, you know, yeah. you, are, you feel like you're there. Like she really, it, it's not even just painting a picture, but it is, uh, it is that she completely envelops your senses in the sort of language that she uses to make you feel as if you are standing in that scene alongside the characters. That's the best way to put it. You make, you, you feel like you're there, but it also makes it, it's a, you it's a read that you you feel like you're always learning, but it, the, the poetic sensibilities don't make it a difficult read at all. Let me ask you this before I let you go. Cause I know we both have kids and, and we got kids that we can, that we got to get to during this quarantine period, hashtag dead life. Where did the title come from? The title, uh, How the Word is Passed, is from uh, a descendant of uh, one of the families in Monticello. Uh, and they were talking about, the Monticello has this project called the Getting Word Oral History Project, where they interviewed the descendants, they interviewed the Hemingses, um, again, the Fawcett's, the Grangers, and so many of these folks whose ancestors were enslaved at Monticello. Uh, and when asked how, you know, this was, I think, maybe somebody's great-great-grandchild, um, when asked how they got the stories of their great-great-grandparent, they talked about the sort of tradition of oral testimony within their family. And that like great-granddaddy would tell uh, his daughter, who would tell her son, who would tell her daughter, who would tell, um, and it's like, this is how the word is passed down. And I stumbled across that that quote and I I wrote it down. I was like, this is how the word is passed down. And I kind of cut this and cut uh, down. And I was like, how the word is passed. And I think sometimes as a writer, you just have that moment. Just it like, it oh, rings okay. good. Yeah, it yeah, rings this good. This is it. This is it. So I have this book. I got it before most of y'all because I had to read it to prepare for this interview. How the word is passed. Tell folk how they can follow you, where they should get this book from. I'm sure everywhere from your big box stores to your independent bookstores. Pre- yeah. Can you pre-order it? Can you pre-order it yet? You can. Pre-order. The book is out June 1st. Please pre-order it. Um, I don't know when our conversation comes out, but 
uh, pre-order it, order it. You can order it from. It'll be before June 1st. So go ahead and pre-order it. If Ibram Kendi says you need to, you need this book, then you need the book. That's the way I feel about it. So you can follow me on, uh, social at Clint Smith, the third, uh, everywhere. And Clint Smith, third.com is the website. Um, but this has been a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me, my brother. God bless you and your children and your family, man. I, I, you know, I know this book is going to do well. And so let me just tell you that, um, let me see who, who is your publisher here? This is Little uh, Brown. Yeah. So as soon as this book hits bestseller status, I can't wait for them to call you and say, you got to get another one out in next <laughs> year. So go ahead and start writing, my brother. Man, I'm just trying to be like you, man. <laughs> New York Times bestseller and whatnot. Man, I got another one, a children's book coming out in January that I finished. I'm so excited. I was tired of my kids looking at little purple people and blue people on TV. So I wrote a children's book and then got another dope book coming out. But thank you for this book, man. Thank you for your time today. Have a blessed day, man. I appreciate it. Likewise. All right. Be easy. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about something that's been bothering me lately, and that's NBA fans. Can y'all get yourself together? Y'all seem to think it's okay to throw stuff on the court. And it's not just heckling, because I remember one time I was heckling Steve Francis at an Atlanta Hawks game, and he threw his sweaty uh, wristband at me, and it hit me right in the face. I still kept that wristband, though, and actually wore it in Archer Hall at Morehouse, but that's a whole other story. But the fact that y'all think it's okay to throw bottles and popcorn and other objects and even run on the court, most recently with the actions we've seen towards Kyrie Irving and Russell Westbrook, In case you missed it, we've had a number of incidents in the playoffs thus far of out-of-control fans throwing objects and running on the court of NBA games and harming NBA players. I don't have to state the obvious here, but I will. NBA players are human, and they put their bodies on the line every night. Anyone who chooses to touch these guys in a manner they don't want needs to be banned for life. Because we know if these players decide to kick a fan's ass, they'll be called every name in the book. So the NBA has to do its job to protect these players. And if they don't, the players need to sit things out until the league gets their fans under control. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys all on Monday.